You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everybody. Great to see everyone. Uh, my name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president here at U.S. Institute of Peace, and it is my great pleasure to welcome everybody. Um, and for those who are watching online, you can follow us on social media at USIP and participate in today's conversation with the hashtag inclusive peace. And I'm looking at who's in the room, and I think probably almost everybody here has something to contribute to the conversation. So I'm just uh, delighted to welcome everyone. Um, Probably everybody knows, but I'll remind us that USIP was founded in 1984 by US Congress as an independent, nonpartisan federal institute dedicated to the proposition that peace is, a, is a, it's very possible. It can happen, despite what the headlines tell us. That's essential for our national and global security. And most of all, it's very practical. And so the conversation that we're having here today is about how to take a lot of evidence, a lot of good policy ideas, how to move that ever more firmly into practice and to understand that. Um, we are all keenly aware that there's a growing international consensus uh, in the international policy community that inclusion is critical to the success of peace processes. There's growing evidence, probably many of you are familiar with some of those most compelling pieces of evidence, including the Ipsilis study that looked at 83 peace agreements and found that when civil society is included, the risk of peace breaking down after agreement is reduced by 64%. That's a very powerful statistic. And so the challenge and the charge today is how to better translate these findings into better practice and better policy to produce better results. Um, and one of the challenges, I think, is you know, how do you not only bring diverse actors to the table, but how do you also enable them to have a more effective way of participating? How do you make that a better process and conversation, and, and uh, I know you'll hear more specifically on that topic today from our USIP Jennings Randolph Fellow, Ezra Choadar, who's, who's been looking at what are the entry points to broaden and deepen participation in peace processes. And I want to note, I was just upstairs with a really remarkable group of senior African women leaders from uh, about eight different countries, and the one thing in a free-flowing dialogue that we had, the one thing that they really wanted to talk about was how can women be more effectively involved in peace processes? And I tried to invite them down, uh, but they're having a, they're, there's a whole program, but you know, they got quite passionate and they said, we don't need any more UN resolutions. We're done with resolutions. We want it to actually happen. We want to no longer be knocking on the outside, but to effectively be able to bring peace to our countries because we have something to offer. So I commend you to the conversation that you're having today. Uh, this has been a, uh, an effort that USIP has been engaged in for over 10 years, including um, uh, our efforts to support inclusion in the peace processes 
uh, in Colombia, and I know you'll hear more about that today. Um, we, in Colombia, looked specifically at what are the more innovative mechanisms that were used in the FARC negotiation uh, to include more diverse sectors, and how do you develop a gender sub-commission that can be effective. And we are currently commissioning new research on what are the forms of resistance to inclusion and how do we overcome that resistance and what's the role of different coalitions uh, in having more effective peace processes, trade associations, different grassroots movements. Um, these are the kind of research findings and others uh, that we'll hear about today from Conciliation Resources. We're just delighted to be partnering with Conciliation Resources. Uh, thank you for the good work that you all are doing. Um, and we're looking at how these best practices can be incorporated into support that USIP colleagues who are working in, uh, to support various peace processes right now, including in Burma, South Sudan, Afghanistan, Colombia, um, and other places, and how to help bring these forward into US policy and to a broad uh, community of practitioners. So I know this will be a very rich conversation. We're still going to see if we can get our African women leaders connected up somehow, but have a wonderful dialogue, conversation. Thank you, everybody in this room, for your interest and engagement in this topic. And I hand it over to my wonderful colleague, Ro Tucci, uh, who's Director of uh, Inclusive Societies here at USIP. Ro. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, so before we kick off, I just want to mention that um, th this is just the beginning of demonstrating USIP's commitment in the space of, in of inclusion and peace processes. So we'll have two new members join the team in, in the coming weeks. Uh, and we've got a range of activities um, that we'll keep you updated on from, from little, little things like including the term inclusive peace processes in our new uh, peace terms book uh, that's available on our website uh, to partnering, expanding our partnership with organizations uh, like Concili Conciliation Resources who have been working in this space for decades. So more to come. Uh, we'll keep you updated for sure. So let's, uh, let's get started. Let me give you a quick overview of the program. Uh, we're first going to turn to uh, Conciliation Resources. So my colleagues, Sophia Close and Zabia, who are senior advisors at Conciliation Resources and authors of the new reports. They'll give us an overview of their four-year project focusing on navigating inclusion and peace processes and how their research draws from local perspectives and local partners uh, in Colombia, Nepal, and a, and a number of other countries around the world. We're excited to hear how they saw inclusion um, negotiated in as we move from, from war to peace. What were the common barriers and trade-offs uh, between inclusion and stability? What are the types of external and internal support uh, that have been most effective? And what are the strategies uh, that organizations have used on the ground to influence these processes? And then we'll turn it over to my colleagues Deepak and Rosa Amelia to hear more about the details of how these experiences played out uh, in Nepal and Colombia. So let me turn it over to you, Sophia and Zabia, please. Thank you so much, Nancy and, and Ro, for your warm welcome and for your um, support for um, uh, conciliation resources to be here with uh, the United States Institute for Peace um, and for your partnership in peace building. Uh, just a little introduction. Conciliation Resources is an independent international organisation 
working with people in conflict around the world for almost 25 years to prevent violence, resolve conflicts and promote peaceful and inclusive societies. We take what we learn to government and other decision makers working to end conflict to improve their policies and their peace building practice worldwide. I'm going to pass to my colleague Zabia uh, to start our presentation. Uh, good morning. Um, so the, the work that we're sharing with you today is um, research that we've been conducting over the last four years. Um, it's part of a bigger uh, research consortium called the Political Settlements Research Project. Um, and we've been conducting it with some of our partners who are here um, today. Um, it's a UK, fund, a UK aid funded uh, project as well, being led by the, the University of Edinburgh in the UK. Um, and the main uh, question or issues that it's interested in is this looking at how um, inclusion gets negotiated and navigated in, in uh, water peace uh, transitions. So our starting point for it was really a recognition that inclusion and uh, conversations around inclusion are becoming increasingly important and discussed. Um, we see um, increasing commitments to inclusion in uh, global uh, policy documents, the recent UN and World Bank report on Pathways to Peace, the Sustaining Peace Agenda, and as well as these uh, normative commitments to inclusion, we also see greater evidence uh, on why inclusion is, uh, how it contributes to sustainable peace, um, and also evidence um, of why some of the kind of exclusionary peace deals that we've seen, uh, some of the um, emphasis on stabilization and stability haven't necessarily allowed for peace deals that have endured. So our starting point was to look at, you know, what are alternative ways to stabilization? How do we look at the way inclusion has been operationalized? Um, particularly, so looking more at the how. How, do, how does uh, inclusion get negotiated into peace deals? into transition processes and also because we work very closely with partners in the context where we work um, looking at the strategies that have been used by civil society by different marginalized groups to uh, to get a different agendas and different interests into into peace deals um, so we were looking particularly in this um, in this project at five different uh, five different contexts um, Colombia, Nigeria, uh, the Ogaden, which is the Somali region of Ethiopia, uh, Nepal, and, and Bougainville uh, in Papua New Guinea. Um, so we have two of our partners from the research, uh, Deepak and Rosamelia from Colombia and Nepal, to share some of the kind of more in-depth um, research findings. And Sophia and I will talk a bit more about this kind of key overarching findings um, broad trends on inclusion and then Sophia will talk a bit about the kind of more gendered aspects of, of the findings. Um, so just to um, look at our kind of key overall findings. Um, oh sorry and I should say um, one of the frameworks that we've been using under this broader political settlements project is the idea of a formalized political unsettlement. So this is the idea being championed by uh, Christine Bell at Edinburgh University, who leads the project, that um, transition processes, the institutions that emerge um, from peace agreements and peace deals, tend to um, formalize some of the um, 
the dynamics from conflict um, into those institutions, but they also allow, they also, um, what emerges is also um, renegotiation, contentions, uh, more bargaining. So it's not necessarily a settlement, it's unsettlement. Mm -hmm. And this, um, the, the argument is that um, this actually allows increased opportunities for thinking about inclusion and trying to push inclusion onto the agenda. Um, so just to run through some of the main findings, thank you. Um, firstly, um, really importantly, what we saw was that inclusive change is slow and incremental. Um, and this requires uh, both sustained commitment, but also realistic uh, and long-term goals. So the, um, the tensions between stabilization and inclusion uh, often to lead to agendas that um, prioritize stabilization to the detriment of, to, of inclusion. But, and because of this, you have quite unpredictable, quite um, non-linear uh, transition processes um, where there's also opportunities for change can be quite unexpected. So for example, in, in Nepal, the 2015 uh, earthquake actually provide quite an unexpected opportunity to push through a, a second constitutional, um, uh, second constitution. Um, so because of this kind of um, tension between stability and inclusion, um, what we saw is that it's really important to think about inclusion from the start. Trying to delay it to later into the process actually closes down space for opening up a conversation on inclusion. What you see tends to happen is elite capture of institutions and political arrangements that actually limit the ability to introduce inclusion at a later stage. So it's very important to think about inclusion from the get-go. Um, and particularly being more upfront about um, inclusion at the start allows you to think through what some of the tensions are between stability and inclusion, what some of the trade-offs are, and where there are opportunities um, for thinking about how to get different groups' agendas um, into transition processes at different stages as well. So this really requires a long-term view to really see through the kind of, to allow for more predictable trajectory, really. Um, the second uh, finding that we uh, had was that the way that inclusion tends to be ne negotiated in transition processes tends to be uh, predicated on the accommodation of uh, specific identity groups. So for if you look at, um, for example, power sharing arrangements, they often operate by trying to um, provide um, specific groups to enter into, into a coalition. And this can have um, unintended consequences. Firstly, that these types of fr frameworks may preclude some groups from accessing political arrangements. So for example, in Nepal, um, we saw that the, the main mode of political inclusion um, that was discussed in the first constituent assembly was federalism based on ethnic self-governance. And this would have benefited uh, identity groups that were territorially concentrated. Whereas some groups, such as the Dalit communities, a very marginalized group within Nepali society, that are more geographically scattered, um, it was quite important to look for other ways to ensure their political representation and inclusion. Um, second implication of this is that mechanisms such as power sharing or reserve seats for particular groups tend to reinforce these societal um, identity markers. And that's often a hindrance to pluralism over the longer term. 
Um, and the mechanisms rarely enable people to move between specific political and identity markers. Um, and this can be, um, this can have an impact on how inclusion gets, is the, some of the outcomes for inclusion in, in, in the future. So it's very important to be aware of the unintended consequences of particular mechanisms and seek ways to, to mitigate um, its adverse effects. Um, secondly, um, or thirdly, I'm not sure where I am. <laughs> um, yeah, thirdly, um, we saw, and this is, I think, speaks very much to some of uh, Ezra's um, research that she's doing here at USIP, is that there is, um, tends to be elite resistance to uh, inclusion agendas. So what we saw is that the emergence of progressive and inclusive politics can often be short-lived. And a key feature of transition processes was the return of the old guard to the political scene. But what we also saw is that the, the re-emergence of some of these more conservative forces doesn't necessarily signal the demise of, of, of inclusion agendas. And it's quite important to think about ways in which to both engage and incentivize those whose interests are threatened. Um, and some of the ways that we saw that, that um, the ability to keep inclusion on the agenda was um, through what we called hooks being built into agreements um, or implementation processes. For example, mandatory consultations, uh, participatory and transparent monitoring processes that give excluded groups leverage vis-a-vis -vis formal actors in the transition processes. <coughs> and also, as commitments become more incorporated into legal documents and instruments, and often they become too ingrained in the political dis uh, discourse to be substantially reversed. Uh, fourthly, and my last point, um, is around um, the subnational level, um, and this often being overlooked as an arena where change is possible, inclusion is possible, but also where different forms of exclusion happen. So the typical focus on the kind of national and the formal often miss specific ways in which exclusion actually happens at the national level. So you see that when we talk about inclusion as a national agenda and thinking about groups that can ask access political arrangements, often um, inclusion gets precluded at the subnational level. And there's much less visible barriers to, um, to inclusion within subnational, informal, customary structures and authorities. Um, and often for many communities, the local and the informal may be more relevant for them in determining their ability to affect change or uh, voice their perspectives. Um, on the other hand, we saw that actually this kind of, looking at the kind of unsettlement at this subnational level, actually allows for um, different avenues or channels for thinking about inclusion at the subnational and informal level. Um, so these have quite important implications for how we think about inclusion, particularly where we see an increased interest in, um, in mechanisms such as decentralization, local governance, uh, peace committees, uh, local civil society activism. Um, and it's uh, what we saw is that it's very important to think about the ways in which inclusion um, at a formal level and the commitments made at a formal level are translated down into this, into this local level. And I think my colleagues will talk a bit more about some of the mechanisms for doing that. And I'll hand over to Sophia. Thanks, Sabia. Um, my, my show and tell. Um, these oh. are out the front, and we hope that you'll um, <coughs> take a take a, a copy. This is the larger paper, and we have a smaller paper that gives uh, policy guidance for both uh, mine and Zabia's presentations. So these reports that I'm talking about discuss findings from our practice-based research in Colombia, Nepal, in Bougainville, in Papua New Guinea. 
Um, we explored particularly how effective peace processes have been in securing inclusive outcomes and how women and other excluded groups have challenged <coughs> and expanded the peace process through this f different forms of organised activism. And we reviewed how the violence within the conflict or the threat of violence um, affects their ability to engage and what extent these groups used international standards like UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and others to further their inclusion aims. So this research uh, builds on research that our colleagues are doing within the Political Settlements Research Project, um, particularly Catherine O'Rourke's work on gendering political settlements that conclude that the root causes of violence, <coughs> including gender inequalities, are rarely fully addressed in a peace process. And our research found that the conflict, um, whilst it did shift gendered roles and behaviours, um, dominant masculine hierarchies remain through the transition processes. So despite the greater participation of women and other excluded groups, these hard to change gendered norms are not being transformed. Indeed, often these systems continue to perpetuate forms of gendered exclusion. And in all the contexts we researched, men, particularly older elite men, continue to dominate much of the national and local level decision making. Um, our findings also highlight that political settlements are shaped by both the formal and informal systems of power, which may remain deeply contextualised and take long periods to shift. So, for example, uh, the final constitutional negotiations in Nepal ended up being decided <coughs> by higher status elite men. Um, despite 30% of the constituent assembly being women. And in Bougainville, where seats um, are reserved for women, many people view the uh, non-quota seats as being reserved for men, um, suggesting that there are fundamental attitudes uh, to gender roles that remain unchanged. So as Zabia mentioned, this, this indicates the need for much longer timeframes um, and complementary initiatives at all levels of the peace process to overcome resistance to change in regards to gender. So conciliation resources um, suggest that donors who are operating in peace transition context can do more to put gender at the heart of their programming and in particular um, our key points. Uh, so women and other excluded groups need sustained and adaptive support to leverage their participation so they are able to engage in the outcomes of uh, um, influencing the outcomes of peace processes in which they take part. This means building in deliberate mechanisms to include uh, these diverse groups um, into peace negotiations, into the agreements themselves and into the implementing institutions <coughs> and mechanisms that come after a peace agreement to seize these opportunities for inclusion. Um, and we particularly note that that needs to happen early um, and uh, during and immediately after the peace processes. And this may include hooks such as reserved seats at formal, uh, national, but also very importantly at the subnational, the local level, as being a, a path for women and other excluded groups to um, engage, and also quotas in constitutional and legislative reform consultations. Another major finding of the research is the importance of using an intersectional approach to peace building to identify these patterns of multidimensional and persistent gender discrimination to help understand which groups are losing out and why. An intersectional approach recognises that exclusion and inclusion are determined by many factors in regards to a person's identity, including their gender. That, for example, their ethnicity, their age, their faith, uh, their ability and their sexual orientation. 
And this should be a basis in which we can create a far more targeted and systematic response to reducing the exclusion of these specific groups. So unless these are multi-dimensional forms of discrimination are addressed, they continue to be embedded within the political settlement. Um, and all, uh, we also noted that international organisations rarely undertake gender sensitive analysis. And we used our um, re uh, conciliation resources, gender and conflict analysis toolkit to do our research We've, and we find it very helpful to take this approach. Um, we also noted that during and after a conflict, non-state and civil society organisations are crucial spaces for activism and peace resistance. Women and other excluded groups working in civil society organisations have continued to create and sustain spaces for inclusive change. This work is difficult to sustain, is risky to undertake, which uh, I think Rosa Amelia will under underline as well, and requires ongoing support. International solidarity and uh, support has been crucial to achieving these local forms of inclusion in all the case studies that we looked at. However, the assistance has also been problematic and has exacerbated community and national level tensions. So participants in a number of the places that we uh, were uh, researching explained that the term gender itself is often understood to mean women, which can exclude the vital role of men and boys in transforming gender roles and uh, behaviours. And our research reinforced the importance of engaging with influential men and key institutions, for example, religious and cultural institution on the ground to build support for transformative change within society. My final point, um, international <coughs> frameworks and standards such as 1325, CEDAW, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples have been very useful in each of the contexts to leverage for inclusion. However, they need to be complemented by having homegrown and bottom-up perspectives, approaches and priorities. And international actors can do more to support local activists to adapt these local frameworks to their contexts, as has been done in Colombia, Nepal and Bougainville. And I think uh, my colleagues will uh, discuss that particular point. So I'm going to pass to Deepak Tapa now to explain uh, the context uh, that he has been involved in in Nepal. Uh, thank you, Sophia. Um, oh, all right. <laughs> okay. uh, the, the Nepal case, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, the situation in Nepal, uh, Nepal has uh, in the past uh, 12 years undergone a political transition uh, and um, emerged out of it, uh, more or less um, intact and uh, is considered uh, by many to be one of the most successful examples of uh, a, a transition that uh, was able to manage uh, all the different grievances. Um, there are obviously differences uh, of opinion uh, regarding what it was able to achieve, and there are shortcomings in the whole process and in the, uh, the political structure that we have right now. Uh, but on the whole, we managed to um, escape a, a, a reversal to a conflict. And that itself is um, is no small thing, uh, considering the the, the tensions uh, around the peace process that we saw uh, between 2006 and uh, more or less still very recently. Uh, having said that, uh, the the one aspect of the peace process that has not been um, taken up with any um, uh, uh, level of seriousness is the issue of transitional justice, and that's a separate issue. So, having recognized that, uh, I will deal with, with more the uh, political process. Uh, which sometimes tends to give a, a pretty skewed picture if you forget the other, other part. Uh, as, as, as shown in the uh, slide, uh, the uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement of 2006 ended uh, 
the People's War uh, launched by the Maoist Party uh, in 1996. Uh, it also ended this, uh, the, uh, the, the supremacy of the monarchy uh, around the same time. So the promise of the People's Movement of um, 2006, which was launched uh, prior to the uh, agreement being signed, uh, was uh, towards uh, greater, inclusive, uh, greater inclusion of Nepal's different social groups, of which, as you can see on the slide, there are so many, 125 different social groups uh, speaking uh, more or less 100 plus languages, uh, following 10 different religions. Uh, of course, like they're not divided equally. Um, the largest group that we have in Nepal is only 16%. Uh, so you can see, understand the, uh, the, the diversity that we uh, face in Nepal. Um, but the other thing was, you know, that it, it, would, it would lead to inclusion, but also the, uh, the uh, end of the conflict. And to some extent, there was a great desire for the uh, end of the monarchy, because the monarchy has continuously, or had continuously stepped in to uh, stymie the uh, progress towards uh, democracy historically. Uh, hence, the, the success of the movement uh, was due partly to this great enthusiasm uh, by and, and participation by um, large sections of the population who envisaged uh, the, the advent of what we then called a new Nepal, uh, quote-unquote, uh, which would see uh, greater inclusion of all, all kinds of people. Uh, it was also possible because uh, the, the, uh, the demands uh, made by the Maoists when they started the People's War uh, uh, had a great degree of uh, inclusion. Uh, they demanded the inclusion of various groups, uh, which uh, following their ideology perhaps uh, was uh, only to be expected. Uh, but it was also a tactical strategy because you have um, in Nepal almost 70% of the population is recognized by the constitution as being marginalized. Uh, hence, there was uh, the possibility of uh, gaining a, a great degree of popular support for their own movement. <clears throat> so by the time the 2006 movement came around, um, the most of the political forces had recognized that exclusion was key to the uh, success of the uh, People's War, and that was one of the problems uh, that we had faced. So they began to calibrate their own positions on the issue of inclusion, and uh, began to at least declare that they were all for more or less what the Maoists had demanded, of course, with certain caveats. And this came about only, not only from the political parties, but also from the, 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 the state, including uh, a government ruled, uh, 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 controlled by a very conservative force represented by the monarchy. Uh, so when the Comprehensive Peace Accord uh, uh, was signed, and around that time, we saw a number of uh, steps taken to ensure greater inclusion of the different uh, social, social groups of Nepal. Um, uh, the, among the main ones that I'd like to mention is that Nepal was declared a secular state, one of the long-standing demands. Of course, there's a large contingent of uh, people, influential people in Nepal who believe that it's a Western agenda, forgetting the long history of organizing against the imposition of uh, a, a particular uh, religion on Nepal. Uh, uh, very important was the adoption uh, at the same time in 2006 of uh, something that we call the Gender Equality Act, which uh, required that all the acts had to be amended to bring gender parity uh, 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 in Nepali laws. Uh, the third thing that we did was uh, we um, introduced uh, quotas uh, in government service and education as well as in the electoral process uh, to ensure greater representation, not in proportion, but then to a fair, fair, fairly large degree. Uh, of um, uh, of the population, uh, uh, and to 
uh, we also recognized, uh, so we also ratified the ILO Convention 169 on Indigenous Peoples and the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that was in 2007, uh, to um, to uh, to recognize the rights of the a large uh, population of the Indigenous people, around 37 percent of the population. Um, and among the things that we did, and that 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 led to the problems that came later, was to uh, introduce uh, the idea of federalism in Nepal, which had also ha which has also had a long history. Uh, and then, you know, like uh, when the um, the Maoist uh, uh, insurgency going on, uh, there was a greater recognition that uh, one of the problems with the uh, the the way the Nepali state functions was that it is a very unitary, centralized structure, and all the development happening around the uh, periphery of the capital. So we need to take government. Uh, to closer to the people, and one of the ways to do that is to uh, break up Nepal into different uh, federal units uh, with a federal uh, uh, state at the center. Uh, which immediately led to the question of what, what is the nature of the federal states going to be? And there was this great debate about whether you know, it should be based on uh, economic viability or whether it should be based on ethnicity. Uh, the problem with uh, both, uh, uh, both approaches was that uh, uh, because when you say economic viability only, you don't recognize the historicity of certain groups having lived in certain parts uh, of the country and the gradual disposition that they faced over, over centuries uh, of their rights and their, and their, and their property as well. Uh, but on the other hand, because of the huge migration that has taken place, internal migration that has taken place over the past uh, centuries, uh, there is no one place where a, a group is in a majority except in small pockets. So despite the fact that there are recognized you know, territories that were historically homelands of particular groups, uh, they don't form a majority. No one forms a majority anywhere. Again, like we have 125 different groups, so it is very difficult to find areas where any, any group forms a majority. So that led to the, uh, the what, uh, what uh, we are, are increasingly calling uh, the, the backlash, the elite resistance, uh, mainly because uh, uh, the, this whole uh, dialogue or this whole discourse around federalism was uh, suddenly conflated with the idea of inclusion. So if you, if you, if you, if you uh, provide greater inclusion, that will lead to ethnic federal states and hence the breakup of the state. Of course, that was one extreme argument. And uh, th there were extreme arguments on both sides also because there was this group of uh, you know, very influential uh, activists, academics, who were advocating ethnic states and also uh, to the extent that you know, they would you know, not exactly ethnic cleanse uh, the, the, the population, uh, other populations from there but then ensure that you know, life becomes difficult through taxations and so on. So you had two sides of the debate, which really uh, helped in watering down the inclusion agenda. And uh, right now, uh, inclusion is uh, still uh, seen as a dirty word in certain circles in Nepal among the elite. Uh, mainly because uh, although inclusion is something that has been demanded by the local population over, over uh, many years, um, the support for activities uh, revolving around inclusion ha has come mainly from Western donors. And hence, uh, the, the idea that inclusion is a Western agenda is very strongly felt in you know, very influential structure, uh, uh, circles of, of, of Nepal. So that is a problem. But the reality is that you know we are there are certain groups of people that are excluded, and the 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 new constitution in 2015 recognized that groups are excluded. Certain certain uh, measures have to be taken to provide for uh, greater uh, greater inclusion. So hence the electoral quotas slightly watered down, 
uh, were retained, the uh, quotas in jobs and education has, has been retained. Um, uh, there, there, there are attempts being seen to somehow, you know, ensure that uh, inclusion is 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 is, is, is a much more uh, a much more milder version of the inclusive policies uh, will be put in place uh, in the future. Uh, recently, in a, in a couple of days ago, uh, there was this uh, announcement by the government uh, that uh, the uh, quota system would apply to someone only once. So, you know, if, if, you, if you enter the government service through the quota system, in, in terms of promotion, you are not, uh, no longer eligible. So th there are various ways in which the elite uh, have ways of getting back because the commissions are headed by the elite uh, and they, sub they submit the reports to the elite and these are the people who make the decisions uh, at the moment. Uh, so that is where we are. Uh, but what has also happened is that um, uh, uh, we held uh, uh, three rounds of elections last year the uh, federal uh, level, the provincial level, and the local level. Uh, and that has led to, uh, because like we have these electoral quotas, uh, and then we had not had uh, local government elections for 20 years, uh, that has led to uh, greater inclusion, uh, particularly at the local level, uh, mainly because the local governments represent or reflect the, the population of those areas. Uh, the, the, the more immediate uh, uh, impact has been in the electoral quotas introduced for women. So the lowest uh, uh, administrative unit is the ward, in which uh, out of five members, two are, have to be women. And one of those women has to be a Dalit woman. Uh, that's even more fantastic. So we find uh, at the moment that at the local level, uh, at least 40% of all representatives are women, So which is a sea change from the situation that uh, existed earlier. Uh, that also uh, has led to uh, 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 other other changes uh, in uh, in the uh, provincial and the federal level also uh, in the federal level and the provincial level at least 33 percent of the uh, legislative uh, members have to be women and then there are other quotas uh, related to uh, various other social groups as well uh, when it comes to the apex uh, decision making bodies such as the cabinet of course representation of women is still below par uh, representation of dalits the the, the most oppressed group in, in, in South Asia uh, is even uh, lower than women, uh, but it is different. Nowadays, you, you cannot have a cabinet uh, without representation of at least one Dalit. You know, of course, it's tokenism and all that, but that's something we didn't used to have 10 years ago. And I think that like, we're moving towards a, a much more, much more uh, uh, progressive state. Um, so that's the optimistic view. Of course, there are a lot of problems, uh, and uh, you know, but hopefully, you know, we won't revert back to now that you know, inclusion has somehow been institutionalized through our constitution and through our laws. Uh, we will find ways in which to uh, manage the many problems we still face. I'll stop here. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, in the Columbian, I, I really like to hear Deepak because I imagine how we can be in some years and then I don't know if I feel happy or not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very good. It's a good lesson to hear too. And in the Columbian case, I just want to say like five or main points that I want to highlight in this moment. The first one, as you see in the, and most of you know the Colombian case, most of you know that we come from a very long 
a conflict uh, environment, and that we have a very conf a complicated conflict. It's not only an internal armed conflict, but it has a lot of many things uh, that are around. So what I want to say is that we have we are actually, yes, a very polarized society, a very divided society, a very broken society, with many agendas that has been not applied of many people, from indigenous people, from Afro-descendant people, from everywhere. We have so many problems. But I think that the main or one of the main problems that we have is that we are a fearful society. We have fear. We feel fear because, and that is extremely important when you are talking about inclusion. That is important because everyone is have fear of any kind of change. Everything is a risk. If too much inclusion, that is a risk. But too less inclusion, that is a risk. But women, they are a risk. But indigenous, they are a risk. But elite, they don't want to talk about risks. So fear is something that we have to take in account when we are talking about inclusion, about changes, about we, how we are moving our society. So this means a lot of tensions because everyone, and in this idea of multiple identities that we also have in another way as Nepal, but we also have so many arising identities that were unknown for so many time. There are people that resist each other. There are people that it is really a crucial moment of recognition, but also a very risky moment for changes. So uh, the second point means that with all this, we are in a peace process, but at the same time, we are in a negotiation. So it's a real weird moment because we are having all the same time. We have to talk about everything at the same time. And then we have to prepare for the next peace process. But we are in a, we have been just in a negotiation that tried to be highly inclusive with gender perspective. And in that sense, we did a good job as women's movement. But women in the negotiating table we're also doing a good work. And I think that this kind of joint work gave very important issues and outcomes. But then we have a transition, very complicated moment, with all these ingredients. And I think we have many studies, and that is something that I always think about. Many studies say, after a peace process, a violent moment will arise. And they say it several times. And they say gender issues are going to be very complicated if gender issues have been thrown to the, to the moment. So my, sometimes I question myself, so if we know all this, why don't we prevent all these issues? If we know it. So 
so many researchers, so many comparative studies saying these moments are crucial because that's a lot of fear and a lot of changes. So why don't we take it in account? And then we have this idea of sustainable peace, but sustainable peace means negotiating in the whole society. Well, you have this negotiated table, but then you make it wider because the whole society is now negotiating, is negotiating inclusion, is negotiating changes. Is we have to speak, we have to dialogue, we have to have negotiations in between society, in between women, in between indigenous different organizations, in between peasants and indigenous, in between Afro-descendants and indigenous and women, and the LGTB and all the arising identities that have been exerted, and all with the statu quo, with the lead resistance. So we have to manage because then our, our incredible challenges are transforming the ways of participating, transforming our ideas about inclusion, transforming our notion about citizenship, and transforming the way we talk with the elite in a peaceful, in a peaceful way. So that is challenging because there's so many things that you have to transform transforming. You have, it's not only the idea of inclusion, it's the idea of transforming the ideas of inclusion and transforming the power relations about inclusion. So it's really challenging. And um, then we find this kind of elite resistance to any change because there are a lot of interests. And there is, and I'm not talking about only the politician elite, I'm talking of so many different economical elites that we have in Colombia. We don't have only as uh, rich people. We have, for example, all the narco-traffic things, and they don't want things to change so easily because they have great business on there. So, we have to manage to have another kind of conversations. We need to be so creative. And that is challenging for women because we don't want to be included just because we are women. We want to be included because we have other ideas about security, about relationships. Uh, it's not, and I understand when we talk about quotas, but it's not only about borders. Uh, it's about other new ideas coming to the democratic debate. So we are trying to build another idea of democracy. And I think that idea of democracy is not really yet invented. And I think that what is extremely incredible of these new ideas and tensions and dynamics about inclusion and participation is because we are creating new notions of democracy. Mm -hmm. And finally, in, with this I want to finish, the last point I want to arise is we are changing the fabric of relations, relations in society. That we was brought in a meeting we had 
previously in New York, and I found it so deep and nice. We are changing the fabric of our relations, and that is challenging. That means that we have to change, and that we have really to have different kinds of support. We need to have support not only to go to a meeting. We need support to know and how to go meeting, be influential, be important in that meeting, have voice in that meeting, go back to my country and say that meeting was useful or it was useless, more of the same, because we, are, we have to be accountable in our countries. And then we have to have notions of how we are going to get better. And finally, the support for Colombia now its support is so important. We have the echoes of peace, but we have the echoes of violence. We have the echoes of peace, and we have to they have to the international support for the echoes of peace, people that are willing to keep working on peace, because the echoes of violence, they always have the ways to behave the way they want. And that is why we have so many human right defenders, women and men killed in Colombia, but that also is why the echoes of violence and status quo are also taking away the life of many women in the feminine sides that are arising so much in Colombia because even in these cultural things, people don't want to change. They want to preserve their privileges. So thank you so much. Thank you, Rosamilia and Deepak, for that richness on the opportunities and challenges of advancing inclusion. Um, I'm going to turn it over to my department, my State Department colleagues and our USIP JR Fellow uh, to offer some reflections. So my first question, Jennifer, to you is, how do you see this gu guidance useful in your effort to support peace processes in the U.S. government? Well, first of all, I just want to thank all of the, the speakers for, for this research and for the work that you've been doing. Um, you know, as Nancy said at the beginning, we know that this works. We know inclusion matters, and we're still not very good at it. Um, and so I think that this is a really welcome. I'm excited about this research and the very practical things that are pointed out in the guides um, about how we can do this better. Because I'm the first to admit that, you know, we I think we, we genuinely want to do this better um, uh, from the international donor side. Um, and we don't necessarily get it right. Um, I think to Rosa Amelia, one of your points about how women, it's not just about creating more seats at the table, it's about w which table, um, which speaks to one of the things that I look at is process design. We, we looked at from, look at all conflicts from a uh, actor analysis, who has the power, who is in, who are the players that need to be included, and then also from process design. What is the negotiating table, but what are the other avenues for inclusion, and on what topics? And time and time again, we see um, women get relegated to the social topics or to the, you know, we'll get to those later topics, not to the main security issues. And uh, as you pointed out, if you're trying to change the security paradigm or if you're trying to change what 
the democracy means and transformative change, then you have to have more voices at the table. And so I just want to highlight, um, you know, we, we do recognize that the underrepresentation of women in these efforts and those conversations particularly really creates blind spots um, that, that we can't ignore. And I want to highlight two different efforts that are underway right now that I think intersect nicely with this with this research. One is on the forthcoming strategy on women, peace, and security. So back in the fall, uh, Congress passed legislation on women, peace, and security that made the US actually the first government to enact comprehensive legislation on this issue. And a cornerstone of that is to develop women, peace, and security strategy. Um, that is being uh, developed right now um, and is going to focus include focus on how to foster women's meaningful participation in peace processes and security issues. So that's going to look at things like how do you make peacekeeping more effective by enhancing gender-sensitive training and bringing more women in? How do you support gen or women's accommodations and gender integration into the peacekeeping and peace process capacity building? And then we're also growing our investments in efforts to engage women in issues ranging from CVE, atrocity prevention, the security issues, again, where their voices are, are most often excluded. So that strategy is in, in development right now. And I think the research that Conciliation Resources has done will be very helpful in sort of fleshing out the where do we take that. Another avenue is the Stabilization Assistance Review, which has been a study undertaken by state, the Department of Defense, and USAID jointly, looking at our decades of stabilization assistance work that the US government has, has done, and saying, well, what works? Um, what do we know about that? And um, one of the findings is the importance of understanding the political landscape really trying to get that right. Um, and that could use a broader focus on um, the whole range of society. You know, in the, in the guidance note, you point out the importance of frameworks that better disaggregate marginalized actors. And so thinking about what that looks like when you're looking at stabilization contexts, um, I think could be really powerful. You know, it, it, the review does recognize that elite bargains and buy-in are part of the stabilization picture, but they're necessary but not sufficient. And I, I want to read just quickly the def one of the definitions that it says in the report of stabilization being political, and that means we need to focus on the local, national, and regional societal and governing dynamics, agents, and systems that lead populations to inclusive, nonviolent settlement and agreement. So there's a lot in there, but I think it does open the door to exactly the type of analysis and a greater understanding of the political landscape that you pointed out. Um, and so where we are in that, the report is written, and it's how do we implement those recommendations. Um, and I, I think would welcome greater conversation about the types of uh, frameworks and analysis that can help us get that political understanding right. Because coming from CSO, our Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, we, we look at the subnational a lot. Um, so very much welcome that finding of uh, th that being a place where in peace processes, we, we can look for broader avenues of inclusion. But we're also really keenly aware of how hard it is as outsiders to get the understanding right. Um, and so welcome more conversation about who who has that information? How do you how do you get it? How can we make our frameworks more effective in actually getting to the type of understanding that you're pointing out so rightly is needed? So I'll leave that there.
Great, Jennifer. Thank you. Those are two concrete examples of, of how we weave this guidance and these experiences into um, U.S. government policy and practice. Ezra, let me turn it over to you. I know uh, that you have a particular interest in uh, recommendation number two and a particular um, comment that is in there that says also engage those threatened by change to mitigate the pushback. Mm -hmm. I know uh, that is an area that you're focused on. So tell us how you see this research. Uh, what's next? Where can we go from here mm -hmm. with that with that finding and, and that information? Yep, thank you, Ro. And I also would like to thank the, our friends from Conciliation Resources. Uh, there's so much to reflect on in these reports, and um, they're so valuable in giving us rich evidence about, uh, you know, especially what I'm interested in, in the obstacles uh, to inclusion, especially the, the resistance part. Um, but I would like to, I'd, I'd like to pick up on, on two issues from, from the reports. Um, and and, um, and and elaborate a little bit more on those. Um, to uh, what is next? So uh, that question. So uh, to just to begin with, um, I, I I think that without addressing how to tackle resistance, uh, uh, either elite resistance or other types of resistance to inclusion, um, or what you call as backlash in your report, we're not going to make much progress. Um, to uh, at least you know, towards this, our desired point on the inclusion agenda. So we have to do something about that. Uh, in my own research, in, in, in the research project that I, I was part of from the Inclusive Peace and Transition Initiative in Geneva, uh, we looked into 40 case studies uh, that, uh, 40 negotiation and, uh, 40 peace and transition negotiations um, that were inclusive somehow. And in we found about like in 29 out of 40, there was some type of backlash resistance uh, to inclusion. So that is, uh, that is another reason why we really need to be thinking uh, more about this. And the evidence provided in these reports is, is very valuable in that sense. So what can we do about that? Well, uh, the one of the things that I'm working on and I think what we need to do next is to unpack, first of all, uh, resistance to inclusion. And what do I mean by that? Um, so we need to really come up with a typology, perhaps, because in my research I'm observing that uh, there are different, um, uh, there are different actually types of resistance. It, it's different in terms of strength. Uh, it takes place at different stages of a peace process. Sometimes there's, there's resistance in the beginning, but it dies out later. Sometimes, actually, there's not much resistance in the beginning, but it builds up in time. Um, sometimes, so the, the target, the locus of resistance, etc. So there is, a, there is a number of issues here. And, uh, and, and we need to use evidence like produced by the conciliation resources to, to do some more comparative work to perhaps find out some patterns around these. Uh, just, to give, uh, just to give a small example, um, so I see, I observe in, in the cases that I work on that, um, that, um, uh, that the, the strategies or the tactics used by those uh, who resist inclusions range from minor to medium to strong. And, um, um, 
and uh, and it can range all the way from you know biased sort of like unconscious bias biased attitudes in a negotiation process all the way to the use of violence against people who are being included etc so there is a whole range of tactics and and maybe some of these are easier to address than others some of these are um, you know but we need to build our awareness around these and see if there are any patterns um, and also we need to be understanding um, that uh, the, the, the the strength in terms of timeline of a peace process, as I said. So just to give an example, in uh, Kenya, for example, there was some mild resistance in the beginning of the negotiations, the post-election uh, uh, violence negotiations in Kenya. There was some mild uh, resistance to inclusion of civil society actors in the beginning from the government, but it sort of died down later on in the process. Whereas, you know, um, you can, you can you, one of the, for example, very common uh, rationales to <laughs> of the resistors is that, oh, we don't want any civil society inclusion because it's just an extension of the armed group or it's just an extension of the, uh, the opposition. So we, I see this a lot across cases, for example. I, the, I, I saw this in the Tajikistan case. I saw this in the... <laughs> Ache uh, uh, case, I saw this in the no. Mexico case with the Chiapas negotiations. So this is a very common discourse, for example. How do we address, how do we address that, right? That are, in some cases, it was addressed successfully, in some others, not really, but what are the strategies that we can use to overcome that? Um, another, um, um, another point uh, that I would like to take up on, uh, I think which is very important uh, in the report that our uh, colleagues raise, is um, the, um, how do we manage expectations uh, that emerge around inclusion better? And what do I mean by this? Um, so as I think Zabia mentioned that inclusive change is slow and incremental, and we all know this. But on the other hand, when, um, like in the Nepal case, right, when um, the negotiation process creates an inclusive space uh, for these groups that have been marginalized for a very long period of time, right, it immediately raises expectations of these groups. But then, knowing that this is a slow and incremental process, uh, the achievements or the attainments do not come immediately. In fact, actually, we know from a lot of examples that it takes long years of continuous struggle, right, to get these achievements. But what happens is, is what this leads to is what we know in, in social psychology is the relative deprivation feeling or the sense of relative deprivation. And as we all know that this kind of deprivation feeling, frustration, you know, um, uh, can actually lead to the mobilization of um, anger around this. So we see some example of this in the Nepal case, for example, with the Madesi uprisings. Uh, they were very upset about the elite uh, sort of uh, 
redoing of the constitution after you know after long years of failure in constitution making and then this is pushed um, you know after the earthquakes etc and there and there was a lot of disappointment because a lot of the things that that were in that constitution they were not happy about and it was sort of a disappointment given what was promised in the in the peace in the comprehensive peace accord and later on so how do we so the the question is like how do we manage these um, expectations around inclusion as mediators donors and as parties actually or as as you know the locals um I think that's also um, an, another uh, another uh, important aspect to to think about. Um, uh, the um, this, uh, I mean, this was not the case only in Nepal, by the way. But uh, again, as I, I observe this in many other cases that I look at, from like Togo to Egypt, etc. So, um, all right. So I will uh, I, I'll end it here. I think we're. <laughs> over time, we're, we're about to um, uh, end. Uh, but I would be happy to um, open up in the question and answer about the, you know, how we can go about the classifying different types of resistance, what what is mild to medium to strong, et cetera, and how, how we can think about that. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to actually just follow up on one question with, with Jennifer before we turn it over to the audience. So Jennifer, just quickly, on that last point of managing expectations, um, do, you, do you have any immediate advice that, that comes to mind how you would um, advise your state colleagues or other donors engaging in the peace process to, to assist in, in managing expectations? And in the meantime, we'll also start to think about your own questions while you're listening to Jennifer, of course. Because um, we'll turn it over to you in just a minute. I mean, I think it's a great point and a great question that we're all going to have to continue to wrestle with. One thing that comes immediately to mind is the recommendation about how do you domesticate international frameworks um, and how can donors use the conversation about, you know, with, without making it a Western agenda, as you rightly point out, also a concern. But how do you take the international um, norms and, and push towards inclusion and use that as an entry point to talk about expectation management and how long situated in part of that larger struggle um, globally and how and use examples of how long change takes and by maybe by um, looking at it through that lens that's one way to start the conversation about managing expectations. Um, I think that there's also an element of just engaging for longer you know once an agreement is signed that's actually when the hard work starts and that's also when the international community is most apt to say great work's done moving on and um so i think it's the, the focusing on implementation and uh making sure that there is sustained engagement particularly on the inclusion agenda Thank you. Okay, well, there's a lot of rich discussion here, a lot of points we can, uh, a lot of pl different places we can go uh, with the guidance and the report findings. Let me turn it over to you all. Where do we have some questions? Okay, we'll go Jackie and then over Tyler. Hi. Uh, is it on? Yeah. First of all, thank Let, you. Let's, can we take two at a time, actually? So we'll go to Jackie and then, and then Tyler over there. Actually, I have two two questions. But, <laughs> sorry. Um, 
the first is about the issue of the frameworks that Jennifer mentioned. And I, I saw on some of the products a uh, conflict analysis through a gender lens. And my question is about other frameworks that are being used. Because from a conflict analysis perspective, to an extent, you're looking at power dynamics. And I think you mentioned power. And I wonder whether there are other stakeholder mapping tools that get at more of uh, social networks and uh, what I call constituencies of experience. So people who have been displaced, people who have been victims of gender-based violence. So reframing the, the gender conversation through the analytical tools that we're looking to define inclusion. And then the second question is, um, I think Deepak had mentioned working at different levels and Rosa as well at different levels in society. And I'm thinking about peace processes and starting at the top with the mediators. And I wonder if there is research about uh, differences in inclusion when there are female mediators uh, at the top. Is this one on? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tyler Thompson uh, from USAID. Um, my question is about sort of internationally condemned actors like, you know, international terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or cartels in other contexts or, or whatever. Uh, and actually, more importantly, the communities that either benefit from their security umbrella or are associated with them. Um, in some contexts, I'm thinking of Mali specifically, but um, these these actors are by design excluded from uh, conversations about peace and, and resolution to, to conflict, but um, in some cases they're an extremely important uh, factor in that process and sort of how, what ideas are there to maybe reconcile with, with those communities? Thanks. Um, hi, so um, Conciliation Resources developed a, a gender and conflict analysis toolkit two years ago and then we've been working with our colleagues in Safer World to roll out a um, participatory systems anal gendered conflict analysis tool. We've now tested it with a focus on um, uh, with, with colleagues in the EU and civil society participants from Pakistan, Somalia and South Sudan. And um, what we do in that is uh, take a number of exercises which draw out the intersectional an analysis. Um, and we've uh, found a, we've sort of developed a number of activities that allow us to do that with the partners in the room and we see that it is getting down to a more finely grained analysis of who um, the different the way that different gendered groups experience um, both the gendered causes and effects of multiple forms of violence so seeing violence is a very big spectrum and then understanding <coughs> as we do that where might be the points of leverage for peace building practice when we do that so um, I'm happy to discuss this in more detail and what we hope to do is sort of provide tools around that for other people to take up that work because we think it's um, helping us uh, get to a better peace practice. Uh, our peace, pro peace process was uh, hardly mediated. I mean, the, 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 
the, the, the signing of the peace accord. Uh, the transition aid, uh, phase was when we saw a lot of mediation efforts. Uh, I would not be able to answer that particular question you mentioned. The, the, the one problem we had was we had just too many mediators in, in Nepal. <laughs> yeah. um, mostly um, the smaller European countries, the northern European countries, um, and some other, other um, uh, INGOs. There's just too many actors. And that led to a hotspot. And that the achievement was nearly zero. Of course, like you know, there are various achievements that have been claimed. Uh, one of the reasons why that did not happen uh, was because every time you know, the, the people were taken away to Switzerland or wherever, the people coming into, you know, the, 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 the representatives of the political parties coming to these meetings kept on changing. So this, this whole idea of uh, building trust and all that, you know, that really did not take effect. So in fact, that, that had a very uh, negative impact in the, uh, the transitional period because anything that came out of anyone's mouth was seen as, okay, this is Switzerland speaking or this is Denmark speaking or something. That really had a very, very uh, negative impact, actually. But <laughs> to answer differently. Yeah. Well, in the case of Colombia, we didn't have mediators. We, uh, Colombia, I think the name mediators in Colombia is complicated. We don't, I, I don't know how to explain it, but we don't like the idea of mediators because we think that we have to talk between us. Um, and this is, I don't know how to explain it, but we like more the idea of facilitators. So in the peace processes, in both, in the last few we have had, we have always facilitators. We don't have mediators. And um, there were women and men in the governments that were helping in the process. So that is another place because we, we try to have an image. Sometimes when we talk about mediation is like this and facilitation is like this. So we like like this, we don't like like this. I don't know, I, sometimes I don't use very well English. Yeah, it's very visual. And in the second question that I, I think it's very important from your side what is happening with the people that are involved in many things? And I just want to take something that Ezra was saying. In this inclusion matter, there is always a suspicion that you are talking in behalf of what side? Maybe you are part of, or you are part of the FARC, or you were previously in the population of the FARC, or you are near to the left wing, or whatever. So that is very hard to overcome, because you cannot talk about justice. You are talking about justice from a perspective, and that is very suspicious. So that is very complicated for inclusion, and draws many times to new killings. And for people that are the, especially the, the people that have been involved and are, I don't know if under the umbrella of, I, do, I don't think that we have to stigmatize again people saying that they are under the umbrella of narcotraffics. They have been excluded so highly that the way that they were, they make up a living was through the growing of this kind of illegal crops. So 
That is a starting point. They were very excluded in the beginning. And after, when we have the agreement, to have them included in the agreement was very easy. But then in the policy, in the real policy, they have been pushed so highly to not to have a process, not to change in a quiet and important way the growing of different crops, having support, having economical support. No, they have been really, sometimes they have been killed. We have in the South 18 peasants that were killed because they were not doing a very fast uh, changing of growing of crops. So I think that is a huge problem because then you have to have the ideas and a, a really good policy to make people change the idea that not only fast money is important but sustainable other things. So that has to be very, and for women, uh, is also an important, important, important issue. Because many women that have been caught as mulas, I don't know the word for mulas in English, but that they have been transporting yeah, mules, um, they were expecting that they were going to be, the, the jail sentences were going to be changed mm. because they were really very poor women with their whole family to be taken care of. But that hasn't happened. Thank you. Any, anyone else you want to comment quickly on the last um, one? Yeah, I was just going to speak to the last question about um, armed actors. Um, so one area of work that C Conciliation Resources has been doing for nearly as long as um, we began 20 years ago um, is looking at engagement of non-state armed groups um, and particularly looking at uh, what some of the barriers are, so prescription regimes, counter-terrorism um, frameworks, but also kind of the opportunities and strategies used by a variety of actors um, to think about engagement. So we produced a publication back in 2000 that was called Engagement of Non-State Armed Groups and that tried to look at different typologies of armed actors um, to think about when are specific points in which they, they may be um, engaged. And also thinking about disaggregating a bit um, what engagement means and looks like. So you, uh, it often is associated with negotiation, which is often associated with um, kind of um, uh, sanctioning a, uh, a particular agenda of an armed group. So we looked at the ways in which um, engagement does not necessarily mean negotiation. Dialogue can take many different forms. And as often, if we look at experience from multiple contexts, um, engagement, dialogue uh, happens with armed actors at, at very early stages um, by a variety of actors, including, as you were talking about, some of the communities um, that may benefit from security. They're also in negotiation, not just about security, but also preventing violence from state state actors as well. So we also brought out a publication on um, community level engagement with non-state armed groups. Um, but I also think there's a, around this issue, a lot of the um, discussion uh, around armed actors is dominated by the security discourse. Um, and what we've been trying to do is bring a more of a peace building lens to this. 
So when we talk about engagement, often what we see is engagement by military attaches as well. Um, and there's very little space for other actors to bring in a peace-building agenda to think about talking to, to armed actors. So there's lots of work being done on this to try and break down some of these A silos and some of the kind of dominant discourses on engagement. So I could point you to lots of it, but we've been doing work on that. Great. Let's take a couple questions in the back over there, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get one more round in. So we'll come back up here. Thank you. I'm from the Washington College of Law, where I teach mediation. Uh, not for peace processes, but for large foreign investment projects. And Jennifer, I think, was alluding to a couple of, of issues that merit for the research. After you agree that you need to convene more people, the challenge comes into who speaks for a group of people. And once you identify who speaks for a group of people, how to avoid or how to make sure that even though that person or group may have an authority, they're in line with the objective that you ultimately want to reach, which is peace. They might have a different agenda, which is actually undermine something that was also alluded to earlier. So my question is, are there lessons, or have you looked, or are there lessons to be learned from a perhaps large foreign investment or just investment public work in which a local legislation requires consultations with indigenous local groups. I know Peru has a rich history. I know Colombia has a rich history. Uh, and I wonder whether some of those lessons or experiences are transferable or the fact that in some instances violence may not be involved make them entirely different experiences. Hi, Juan uh, from USIP here. I'm kind of new here. Um, and I'll follow up on what you're saying. Um, I, I'm a consultant for, or was a consultant for international donors and organizations and diplomatic missions. And part of the problem that we have is that our own international structures are not very inclusive in our own structures. And that has an impact on the way we promote inclusivity. And one of the, the, the examples that I have is that whenever I get hired by an international donor, um, I'm given a set of actors that are considered interlocutors that are acceptable to that donor, and I have to stay within that realm. And they don't seem to be democratic either in their own in their own structures. So I, I throw it back to you uh, and ask you, what kind of strategies do we have to not only to ensure that the international community is as well inclusive, but also that when we have these interlocutors, that they're also democratic in their own understanding of who can participate as legitimate actors for them. Sure, we'll start, we can start there and then uh, see who else wants to chime in here. On the, on the lessons learned from investment, um, I, uh, negotiations, I think that's really interesting and it is something that within CSO we have not looked at. Um, a lot in terms of how those would compare. I think that there probably are lessons that can be drawn. One thing that immediately comes to mind is the, you know, you give an example of mandating consultations uh, with the legislator. Well, in a, in a conflict environment, you may or may not have a functioning uh, legislature, but that doesn't mean that the system you would use for consultations couldn't apply necessarily. So I think it's a really interesting question and not one. Um, that, that we have personally looked at. On our own structures being not inclusive and having you know the list of preferred interlocutors, that absolutely uh, does happen. But that's why I think that 
an increased focus on really understanding the political landscape and trying to broaden that list is important. Um, and that we're coming at it not from a, you know, uh, who are our best contacts in the field, but from a really trying to understand what is going to make a dialogue inclusive and sustainable and work. Um, and so we come at it a lot from the analysis end of really trying to understand who those actors are and hopefully that helps to broaden the conversation to the then how do you make sure that those interlocutors themselves are democratic well some of them are not going to be and some of them are not going to have an inclusive lens and they have to be dealt with and probably you know engaged as well um but i think you're right that making sure not to limit the focus to them so fair points Yes, I'll just add something uh, to that in relation to consultations, basically. Um, you particularly ask about consultations with indigenous groups, and there are actually many examples of this in, in the cases that I looked at. Um, I think there, and, and consultations is one of the most frequently used method of inclusion, especially uh, with uh, broader constituencies like indigenous people, etc. Um, um, the the question is more like what kind of consultations or what you know how those consultations are designed, uh, how they're conducted. Um, you know, you have a whole range of. Uh, ways uh, from town hall meetings to um, you know other uh, types of sort of consultative uh, processes uh, but one example that immediately comes to my mind about in, in including indigenous people in consultations is Guatemala uh, the, the peace negotiations there the civil society assembly which was um, sort of an officially mandated uh, officially mandated I mean both negotiating parties agreed to have uh, or to establish a consultative forum like that, which included indigenous uh, people there. Uh, but again, you know, one of the main problems with that uh, was that even though it included all sectors of society, except one, the economic, uh, mostly the economic elite who resisted, who boycotted and did not want to be there, and then later on actually uh, they they uh, continued their resistance, um, but uh, so there, there are many examples uh, of that, and most, most in most of the examples, the form, the uh, you know, the procedures is through public consultations, some way of public consultations. Great, thank you. Okay, let's take another round. We'll go up here. Got a lot of questions. I mean, if if, if we want to keep going, we could extend a little bit. I don't see anyone walking out the door. So, uh, how's your time limit? Yeah, please go ahead, both of you. Thanks. Yeah, Jackie O'Neill with Inclusive Security. I want to pick up on the idea of resistance, um, and to ask about whether or not you're finding gendered lenses or gendered approaches to resistance, either the way different ways that men and women are resisting, or that it's targeted at women. And I'm it's I'm prompted in in part by um, reading a lot lately about the different ways that women in political life are targeted as women. So they're targeted, like their sexuality is attacked, they're targeted with imagery versus words, et cetera. And so I'm wondering if that, if you've, that surfaced, and perhaps Rosa Amelia, you were mentioning that there's increase in femicide, et cetera, in Colombia. Is that a form of resistance to the peace process that you're seeing? Thanks. 
Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Kim Weichel. I'm a gender and peacebuilding advisor. So one of the key components, I think, in enhancing inclusion and peace process is the role of a vibrant civil society, which, of course, can partner and, and try and keep the government accountable. At the same time, obviously, we're seeing a crackdown of civil society voices in many countries. Um, it's one thing, of course, to have the government pass a national action plan or a gender equality act. It's quite another for them to implement it. And it can, in fact, enhance tensions if it, there's an expectation, talking about expectation management, that it's going to have some change and then it act doesn't actually occur. So I'm wondering if in Nepal and Colombia you can talk about, you know, did civil, has civil society really organized together in, in a coalition form, not just gender, but a variety of uh, groups come together to both partner and push the government, or perhaps in Colombia the elites, in terms of enhancing inclusion? Oh, thank you so much. I just want to ask a quick question about the point uh, uh, commented by Rosa in terms of how the, uh, how can we change the way that we speak with the elite. Especially that is an important problem for countries in conflict resolutions because there are powers, there are uh, actors that are resistant to change and most of the time it's because they have uh, rules of power that traspasses the local capacities of countries in particular. So my question I will say is how the international community can build capacity for countries to foster the effective dialogue mechanism with the elite while building an integrated approach with top-down and bottom-up strategies to promote inclusive processes in peace. Thank you. Okay, great. So we're going to go over to Rosa Amelia and Deepak. And Ezra, I think you have a piece in there too on the gendered lens to resist. Well, <clears throat> first I think international policies of many countries, sometimes we see it like with different speeches at the same time. We are talking at the same time about peace, but at the same time, international community are pushing highly for results. So with this idea of planning and what are the outcomes tomorrow and what are the outcomes to So it's like a very complicated um, the idea of what peace building means, because then we have to finish all the for example, all the growing of illegal crops, but at the same time we have to build peace, inclusive peace with all these other things. So this is kind of makes very tense the environment in the countries because then you have also this international pushing all around us. And also with all these economical issues and these mining issues because we are trying to get back to the land but at the same time land is going to be sold to new people for mining or uh, different kinds of extractivism. So the tensions are not only the ones that were left by the conflict but the daily conflicts that we are perceiving that they are new or getting worse. That's one of the things that I want to say. The other one is that in the resistance in the case of indigenous people and many people, I don't know if in Nepal, but in our countries, we have gone through the consultation, the signing of agreements, the going on, and then the institutions and the country don't have the capacity or maybe the will to accomplish all these consultations. And they are just, sometimes I really think that we don't believe anymore in consultations. Mm -hmm. 
because I was saying in these days that we have so many consultations that we have fatigue of fat participation. We have participation fatigue because nothing is really changing. And the last thing I want to say is that feminist science, yes, and this is important. We are not only changing economical issues like this between poverty and so on and so We are changing relations and privileges between men and women. And men don't want to, many men, sorry for the men that are here, many <laughs> men <laughs> uh, don't want to lose their privileges. So in society, these echoes, you cannot understand, understand them very well, but then it's like a justice coming from men saying, what is happening? We are changing too much. You have to go back to the way you were before. So unfortunately, in our case, many women are dying because we are conducted again, reconducted to the way that we should behave and not to have too much freedom. Uh, uh, civil society played a very uh, major role uh, in the uh, in the run-up to the 2006 uh, uh, popular movement and uh, further into the uh, peace agreement. Uh, that was mainly because the political parties had been so thoroughly discredited uh, that uh, they had gone on making uh, commitment after commitment, declaration after declaration that, you know, they've made a mistake, now they're going to reform. Of course, that did not happen ultimately, but you know that was that was uh, the the um, the promise that they had made to the people, and it was civil society which uh, rehabilitated them in the eyes of the people, and brought them together uh, uh, as uh, the ones who were going to lead the popular movement. Uh, once the popular movement was successful, uh, obviously the the party started sidelining the civil society, and civil society at that time in Nepal, civil society is also very partisan. So that was a bipartisan um, effort, um, uh, well, a multi-partisan effort uh, in, in, in the non-partisan <laughs> effort in, uh, in bringing the parties together. Uh, and once the parties came back to power and they began sidelining uh, civil society in general, uh, most of the civil society actors began following their own parties. So they had com competing uh, visions of what the new Nepal is going to be like, and hence uh, they were not able to play as active a role. Uh, but there were certain elements. Again, the, the, then you have civil society that represent the marginalized groups and, and of course, uh, women as well. Uh, and th these were groups that were supported uh, because that is what the mandate of the peace agreement was and of the, the constitution, interim constitution we had. They were supported by various uh, Western donors. Uh, and as a result of which, uh, the whole donor agenda of inclusion, as I said, was seen as an attempt to um, divide up the country. And now there is a, there is a backlash, and uh, we are between India and China, both of which are not very um, helpful towards uh, civil society at large. Uh, and we learn from both of them. There, there are examples, and uh, the, the current uh, the prime minister we have has shades of uh, learning from both, uh, both uh, the north and south. And hence, uh, there is this greater emphasis and, 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 and greater um, uh, uh, the, 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 the discourse at the uh, government level is more about, you know, now that you know, you've, we've all been taught about our rights, 
now we need to be taught about our responsibilities, whatever that yeah. means. You know, it's, yeah. it sounds very nice, yeah. but they, they, they talk about that. Hence, uh, there is a greater attempt by the state not to allow funding for you know, rights-based work in Nepal. Mm. And that is seen clearly from the uh, the arrogation of all authority over NGO activities by the Prime Minister's office. Mm. Mm. Ezra, did you want to make a quick comment? And then, and then we are going to unfortunately have to wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to make a quick uh, summary remarks and then I'll leave uh, Rosemary and Deepak if there's any last reflections you want to leave with our policymakers and practitioners. Um, I, the, I I would like to take on the question, gendered blends on I, I don't know really, actually. Maybe there is, but we don't know. And I think this is a great question to explore further. Uh, but uh, we were discussing this among ourselves earlier today that uh, one thing that I know is that sometimes um, resistance to women inclusion comes from places that you don't expect that it will come from. It comes from more liberal-minded, uh, Western, educated, etc. men, rather than you know the usual suspects that you that you expected from. I was uh, just uh, uh, talking with uh, a woman uh, working in on Syrian negotiations, and uh, like this has been the case, for example. So it's really, I think it's worth really looking into and explore further if there is any gendered lens or difference in, in resistance to women inclusion. Great. Well, thank you for those who stayed. I'm going to do a quick, quick summary, see how much I can capture um, from, from the report in particular, and then again uh, pass it over to Rosa Amelia and Deepak. So we've got smart inclusion and incremental approaches. We've got inclusion from the start so we can navigate and address the tensions with the stability agenda. We've got being mindful of the consequences of power sharing and reserve seats. We have considering and anticipating where we might see recapture and resistance and building in hooks to overcome it. We've got not overlooking efforts at the subnational level. Um, we've got, we understand that gender norms are perpetuated long into the transition. So how do we recognize and work towards much longer frames? How do we use the intersectional, intersectionality lens uh, along with continued gender analysis? How do we help the international community uh, and the assistance they provide recognize their limitations and their influence um, and assist local organizations in, in domesticating uh, international frameworks to their context? We talked about overcoming resistance, managing expectations uh, and relative deprivation and ultimately how does this, these findings and, and these rich experiences, our next step is to think about tools and strategies for policymakers to help uh, turn these, these findings uh, into practice uh, and into reality. So I hope that, I hope I did some sort of justice, um, but please, Rosa, Amelia, and Deepak, uh, leave this group with some final thoughts. I really don't have much to say except to pick up on a point that was made earlier about interlocutors. Um, as you can imagine, I'm also, I also happen to be one of them. Uh, there's an email from someone in the USAID that has been sitting has not been answered. But uh, that, the, the, I mean, like, I think like what, uh, uh, you know, as, 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 as donors, uh, what is required is to go out of your comfort zone of, you know, talking to the same people. And uh, it's very difficult because, you know, you're dependent on your own local local advisors uh, who 
uh, are also comfortable with a certain group of people. But there has to be a way of doing that. And then, of course, mm -hmm. like, uh, you never know who you're talking to, you know, like, mm -hmm. for instance, the last time, you know, uh, the last time there was a group from DFID um, that had come in, and we'd been called to what, uh, what I might call a focus group dinner uh, with uh, two other people. Uh, so the first thing I asked him was, you know, why did, you, why am I here? Can you tell me? Because you know, I, I, I have different identities, and uh, they said because like, I'm a young, young progressive intellectual. Very nice to hear that, especially, especially the young part. Uh, but then, like, you know, but I, I know that you know I'm invited to different other groups for my own social identity, for my background as, uh, as, a, as, as, a, for my academic work, all of these, and you know, like. It's, it's not very helpful talking to the same people, you know, because like I, I, I'm not called by the Swiss, for instance, you know. I, I'm there, you know, USAID calls me, uh, DFID calls me, and um, um, one or two other INGOs call me for these, you know, when the teams come in. But like, I'm telling the same thing over and over again. Yeah. What's the point, you know, like, so, just to make that. <laughs> so, thank you. Well, I, want to finish saying that the 27th of May, we are going to have elections. And that my country is quite vibrant in this moment because we have different candidates and we are in campaigns and so on. But one of the things that we always say is that we want peace not to cost our lives. And that's why I think civil society in Colombia is very, also vibrant and is in an incredible dynamic. And I think a lot of people are working for really achieving peace. And as Deepak have just said, we want the international community to go out of the comfort zone and they have to see us like societies that are building something new and the investment that all international community have done on these countries is an important investment, is a middle and long-term investment, but is an investment you cannot lose. So the support for a transitional and really an opportunity to establish other dynamics in our countries is substantial for sustainable peace. Um, and thank you all for coming and thank you again to uh, uh, Yusuf um, and to Jennifer for joining us. On this panel, just a final plug for uh, some of our publications that are outside on the table. Please help lighten our loads traveling back to the UK. Uh, but also you'll find there the, the reports that we've been sharing today, but also some of the more uh, the context-specific case studies uh, that we've been talking about. And just a final plug, in a couple of weeks, um, under the same project, we're bringing out a, an in-depth um, report on Afghanistan and the, the political transition there. Uh, it looks at some of the issues we've discussed here, 
particularly around, um, we have some really interesting interviews with um, members of the Taliban, some of the Taliban leadership, looking at political options um, and some of their um, resistance and, uh, and interest in pursuing political transition. Also uh, issues around subnational um, inclusion and also gender dimensions as well. So look out for that. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you for sticking around for another 15 minutes. Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usrp.org backslash podcast.